Every culture has its stories, every culture has its myths, uh, every story, every culture has its, its heroes and heroines. Um, and beyond mere inter- entertainment, uh, though it can certainly serve that function, be- though beyond mere entertainment, these stories serve to, to give us a common sense of meaning, a common sense of purpose, a shared language. Uh, who or what are ours, you might be wondering, though? Or is, is Western culture, do, do we have such stories? Do we have such myths? Do we have such heroes and heroines? Yes, we do. Of course we do. We're no exception to that. Uh, who or what are ours? The autonomous individual. The autonomous individual is the, the great hero, the, the great myth of, of our day. The idea being that identity and purpose are found by looking within and then expressing, Right? found by looking within identity and purpose who we are and why we're here is found by looking within and then we are it's incumbent on us of course because that's the myth that's the story that we live in and abide by Uh, the idea is to look within and then to express that self-discovery and self-expression no doubt no few of us have have maybe said it or at least heard it you need to be true to yourself you need to be authentic you shouldn't be anything less than that than be than to be authentic we are catechized in fact in these things Uh, you don't know this but every time you turn on disney plus you are being catechized uh, in this myth in this set of stories let me give you i'm not picking on the, the disney films i mean it's just the reality of the culture in which we live but here are three lines that you can just snip snip from uh those some some samples so Moana, follow your heart. How many times have we heard that? There it is right there in the script, though. It's, it's part of the, the story. Follow your heart. Tangled, live your dream. Live your dream. Toy Story, not one, not two, not three, but four. Uh, listen to your inner voice. That's the, the stream in which we swim. That's the air that that we breathe. It's who we are as North Americans, as Westerners. It's who we are. It's what we do. We look inside and we express what we find on on the outside. And uh, that's true whether or not you're on the right. And it's true whether or not you're on the left. We're all doing this. We're all doing this. It would seem, though, that being the case, that perhaps, perhaps it might be reasonable to stop time out and just ask the question from time to time is that working is that actually working that brings us to leviticus uh this uh series that we're in uh and you're to be commended here on daylight savings time on a cold wintry day coming out for leviticus um but uh, maybe you thought it was something else. I don't know. But anyway, so but we're in Leviticus 15 in the course of hitting these, these high points uh, moving through the book. And um, you'll be glad to know that this morning we do not have any artist renderings of where we're going with what you're, we're about to delve into here in Leviticus chapter 15. Um, we're about to talk about bodily discharges and we just have to own that <laughs> and just be real. 
That's what we're finding here in the text. And, you know, you can say, and it has been, the question has been put to me. Well, if you're just hitting high points, why in the world would you touch this one? (laughs) Because it touches on so much that you find within the structure of the whole of Leviticus, the book. And so why duck it? Let's just go right in. Let's just go right in and own it and let the Lord speak. So let me get, it's a, it's a long reading. It's a long reading. I'll grant you that. It's uh, 33 verses. So like I did last time, I want to give you some, some, mile, some, some milestones, some, well, it might be not milestones, but markers along the way, trail markers along the way. Okay, so first you're going to see a verse or two uh, of, of an introduction. And then at the very end, you're going to see something of a conclusion, so like bookends. But then there's a whole lot in the middle. And so the first half is basically about men, okay, and male discharges, all right? And that's in verses 2 through 15, and we're going to be seeing some that are abnormal, not usual, trouble signs. You get to verses 16 and 18, and that's more normal, okay, in cases of a, of a healthy person. The second half, you shift towards women, and it's something of a mirror image in terms of the outline, okay? So you move from the normal with the men to the normal with the women, and that's uh, verses 19 to 24, and then verses 25 through 30 are the the abnormal, indicating there are some problems there. Okay, keep in mind, um, this is God's word. He has given it to us for a reason. He gave it to his people then for a reason. Let's hear this with an ear of curiosity and longing to learn, okay? And then to walk it out, to walk it out in our lives, okay? So Leviticus chapter 15, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean. And everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean, and whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. 
And when the one with a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a burnt offering and the other for, uh, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. Okay, those are the abnormal discharges for the man. Now we're about to shift into the normal, more healthy situations for the man. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. Now we're shifting to the woman, the normal, uh, healthier situation for her. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now shifting to the woman, to continue with the woman, but now for abnormal situations. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be as to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. The priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus shall you keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst." This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an, an omission of semen, becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. All right, can we pray together? Lord, we know that the Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so we hear that, 
And we want to apply that and know that even here to Leviticus 15, to every passage, not just the ones that are plain and obvious, but the ones that perhaps are a bit elusive and confusing for us. And so all the more we cry out to you and ask that you give us understanding and wisdom now to understand what is going on here. Why? Why these rules and regulations, these rights and commands uh, for your people? What did it mean then? And what does it mean for us now? What did it mean for your people on that side of the cross and on this side of the cross? Lord Jesus, we need your help. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be moving and give us clarity of, of thought uh, of understanding, and indeed even more, that you would help us to walk these things out, and not that this would not, not in any way, just be some curious study that uh, our, our um, well, I don't know, that, that just so somehow we would find ourselves to be people of insight by, by having studied this text, but no, hardly that we would make us uh, your own, increasingly your own. We pray in your name, amen. You have no doubt heard, perhaps maybe even voiced, this accusation. Christians are so inconsistent. Christians are so inconsistent. You are so quick to pick and choose, cherry pick. Uh, pick the, the passages, the commands, the stipulations uh, that are, are easier. The ones that you like, the ones that you favor, and then you ignore the ones that make you uncomfortable and that you don't know what to do with. Christians are so inconsistent. And then the line of argumentation goes from that to the inconsistency of Christians to the foolishness of Christianity and the irrelevancy of the Bible as a whole. We need to ask ourselves, does that line of argumentation actually hold? Uh, well, how, how should we respond to that? Because that's a, that's a real thing. If you haven't encountered it, I promise you, you will. Uh, you will. And uh, how, do we, how do we engage with, with that sort of thing? Well, first we have to engage with this, with just a candid admission. We are inconsistent. That's right. That's right. Own it. Own it. Admission. That's where you begin. And then beg for a moment of discussion and of clarity. Can we, can we talk a little bit about these passages like this that, that folks point to that perhaps have been pointed out to us in, in this accusation of inconsistency. How, 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 after all, did the people of Israel, in their time, view commands, rights, and regulations such, such as this? Well, it, we read just a little while ago from Psalm 119, and perhaps it might be worthwhile going back there again, just, just for a moment, if we might. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, it was, uh, I'm looking at two verses in particular 35 and, and 40, um, where it becomes very clear that the people of God did not see, I'll read it here in a second, but the people of God did not, did not see God's commands, his stipulations, these rights and regulations as being a burden, but rather a blessing. They recognized that they were given not to, to chain them down, but rather they were given by the God of all creation, the God of provision and providence and their redemption, their Savior and Redeemer for the sake of human flourishing in their time, in that stage of redemptive history. So, you find things like this, Psalm 119, verse 35, where we read, Lead me in the path of your commandments, I delight in it. Or verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. 
give me life. Did you know that for the psalmist, Leviticus was included in that? Leviticus was included in the list of that which gave him delight, that he longed to, to have more of and to grow in. So again, hardly a burden. It was a blessing. Well, okay, then that said, how should we understand such laws today? We have to say from the start, very clearly, they are not enforced today. Let's, not, let's just be very clear. Those Levitical laws, such as what we've seen here in chapter 15, are not in force today. They were part of what is oftentimes referred to as the Old Covenant that was preparing the way, pointing the way for Jesus, and he has fulfilled all of that. He has fulfilled, there are all their purposes, all the sacrifices, all of the rites and regulations, all that was closely tied to the tabernacle and the temple, the priesthood itself was pointing towards Jesus, and he has come and fulfilled all of that. That was God's design. That was not plan B. That was plan A from the very, very beginning. And that's what he has done. It's what he has accomplished for, for us. Now, that said, though they are not in force for us today, they have much to teach us today. There is still much that we can learn from such passages as this. I mean, think with me. Just think with me for a moment. The laws reflect the heart of the lawgiver. That's the case with human lawgivers and a divine lawgiver. The laws reflect the heart, the character, the person, the priorities of the lawgiver. And who is this lawgiver? He is the Lord and giver of life. The creator of all things. Again, Yahweh. Jehovah, their Redeemer, whose greatness is matched only by His goodness. That's who has spoken. That's who has, has given these commands. Lord over, dare we say, Lord over all of life. That's who this is. That's who is spoken. He's Lord over all of life, and what He's, he's speaking here into all of life. The Lord speaks into all of life, indeed, even to the, into the most personal aspects of life. And that's what we see in these Levitical commands, these commands on purity and impurity. That he speaks into all of life. He is the God over all of life. He speaks into all of life in even the most personal aspects of our life. Now, if you've got the bulletin, if you've got the outline, you can see where we're about to go in terms of the, the, uh, the outline. Um, the first part being, law, just generally speaking, we're going to look on the laws on purity, the laws on purity and impurity as we find in Leviticus. And just, that's like going to be our foundation. It's going to be point number one. And point number two, then building off of that specifically, what then are we learning here in Leviticus 15 about these laws on bodily discharges? What is that meant to then tell us based on what we, you know, point two, what, is it, what, we, what are we saying then, what are we learning there based on what we're seeing in point one? All right, so point one, Levitical laws on purity, what are they for? Think with me, just imagine with me for a moment. Put yourself in the sandals, in the robes of the Israelite, the man or woman, the child, and you're hearing these things, you're seeing these things. This is part of your life. This is the way life is done in the camp as you're wandering through the wilderness. And you know th this, this is what you're seeing all the time. 
adherence to these commands. Moses and Aaron proclaiming these things, standing for these things, leading you in these things. What's being made clear to you? What are you learning? What are you discerning through this about God and about yourself and this relationship and, and the world as a whole? Well, for starters, the limits of ritual purity. The limits of ritual purity. I mean, after all, it, it addressed only the externals, right? That's as, it's as far as it could go. The, these ritual laws, regulations, rites, touched only measurable things, visible things. Um, to, to walk in obedience to those things possibly reflected something of the heart, but not necessarily because these were outward actions, you know, things that you would, you would do, and you could fake that. And we certainly we see tragically record of that. So the first thing to say, we've got to recognize in terms of, of the, uh, the um, limits of these ritual purity laws as they addressed only the externals and something else we've got to say. They're not, the ritual purity is not the same as moral purity. And we talked about, I alluded to that a few weeks ago. I said we we're going to come back to it. Here we are. Ritual purity is not the same as moral purity, not necessarily so. It's, it's why some commentators have wisely noted that perhaps it'd be better for us to speak not so much in terms of cleanness and uncleanness, but purity and impurity, because in our, the way we think about cleanness, it immediately goes to righteousness and, and right standing with God. And that's not necessarily what we're seeing here. Ritual purity does not necessarily imply inner righteousness. As Jay Scalar in his wonderful commentary in the book of Leviticus put it, it'd be better for us to speak of ritual states. Ritual states of purity or impurity, okay? Not necessarily reflecting anything of the heart. Ritual states that, that speak to what you can do and what you can't do, where you can go and where you can't go until something happens in that ritual state. Okay, here's an example that perhaps you can, we can latch on to for a minute. If you have the flu, that's your state, that's your state of health. If you have the flu, you have no business going to visit a friend who has a newborn baby. You need to mend. You need to get well because of your state. Is that a reflection of your righteousness? No, but it does tell you something what you can do, can't do, can go, can't go, okay? If you've just had a, a brutal workout at the gym, and it's, pro it's probably, you know, I'm thinking you, you know, there's, there's an odor there, um, it's probably not wise on your part to immediately go to that really important job interview. It would be wiser of you to take a shower, is that a state of righteousness? No, no. It has nothing to do with that. It's just a state of being where you are, what you can do, what you can't do. Now, transpose that over to these ritual states. It's something like that here, which then give us prescribed steps as well as to what you should do to move yourself from one particular state, ritual state of impurity to purity. Okay, so limits of ritual purity. That's, that's the first sub-point. Moving from the limits of ritual purity, what about the lessons? What about the lessons of ritual purity? Well, if, again, if you're an ancient Israelite, man, woman, child, observing these things, this is your life, this is what you observe, this is what it's, what it's like to, to, uh, to be an Israelite, you have continual reminders. 
you have these daily, regular prompts, these, if you will, teaching tools showing you some things. What things? God is holy. That's one of the, that's one of the prime reasons for these ritual laws. It got to, 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 again, remind us, prompt us in the camp, through the day, through the week, through the month. God is holy, and we are to reflect something of his holiness. The idea being something like this. If he is so concerned for ritual purity, how much more so than must he be concerned about my moral purity? These continual daily prompts in every area of life, which takes us to this, not just continual reminders, but prompting us towards continual, complete, utter surrender for our whole life. Because what we see in these ritual laws, rules, regulations, is he is Lord over everything. These rules and regulations touch every aspect of our lives. If you go back, chapter 15, if you, look, if you have a, uh, a commentary and you look at outlines of the book of Leviticus, oftentimes what you see is chapters 10 through 15 or 11 through 15 sort of grouped together. And the reason is, is because they, they, it's, a, it's a, um, a section within the book that's speaking to these states of ritual purity, impurity, and, and what causes it and how to move in or out of it, okay? And, and it, it's all set up in chapter 10, verses uh, 10 and 11, chapter 10, uh, verses 10 or 11, where we read uh, these words that the Lord speaks to Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And then from there, in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, you get to these rules, regulations pertaining to um, foods, to childbirth, to disease, and now, chapter 15, these discharges. And the idea being that it was meant to, to point out, to signify, to be a reminder that, look, all of life is under God. All of life is an opportunity to remember, to reflect upon, to respond to His initiative of grace, His care, His provision, His redemption. And to, and to live that out in everything. He's Lord over everything. He's given us these rules and regulations to prompt us in these things. And this is an opportunity. Our lives are an opportunity to reflect something of his um, lordship over the whole of our, our days. That's a huge thing in terms of a general principle as to how to understand these Levitical laws on purity. And before we go into the second point, I just I think it might be helpful to just think about some application here. Because there, there are some, as we think about, you know, how, what do we do with this today? He is still Lord of all of life. That has not changed in the least. The Lord is still Lord, still God of, of all of life. I'm going to keep your thumb there in, in Leviticus uh, and go with me all the way over to the Newer Testament. First uh, Corinthians, that's after the Gospels and after the book of Acts and then Romans and then you have First Corinthians. There's a second one, but we're looking at the first. First Corinthians, just one verse. It's very important though. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Interestingly enough, Paul is about to say something about food here, though in a different context than what we see in Leviticus. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all 
to the glory of God. You get up tomorrow morning, you wonder, what am I supposed to do today? I don't know what's on your to-do list, to-do list, but this, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be at the top. Do all to the glory of God because he is Lord over all, which is to say there is no division whatsoever, no division whatsoever between what we erroneously refer to as the sacred and the secular. There's no division between those things whatsoever. We, there, is, there is no daylight to be found between those categories, sacred and secular. You know why? Because biblically those categories don't exist. Biblically, those categories do not exist. As Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, there are no little people and no little places. Every calling, every activity, every occupation, every station in our lives as disciples of Christ are to be lived quorum Deo. It's Latin for before the face of God. All of it. Every place we set our feet this week, every breath we draw into our lungs, every resource that he calls upon us to steward is from him and to him and through him. With no exception, he is still Lord of all of life. And recognizing that and living out of that is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we see that reflected right here in these laws on ritual purity. He's Lord over all, over all of life, and he speaks into all of life as well, including, including the most personal, which then gets us in the, into the second point. The second point that has to do with these bodily discharges here in Leviticus chapter 15. What in the world is this about? Now keep in mind we're building on point one, so maybe there might be some clues and some hints already. But what on earth is this about? What's the thread that holds it all together? Well, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Ultimately, you can see the thread that's holding this together. The, the commonality is the, repro the human reproductive system. Right? Human sexuality. And in so doing, Leviticus 15 gives us an insight into the Bible's perspective on sex. And that is under the lordship of God. Because everything is under the lordship of God, including this aspect of what it means to be a human person, a man or a woman. And what's interesting is, from the start, what you don't see, this may surprise some of you, I, wouldn't, I, I would not be surprised if it surprised many of our contemporaries. But what we do, you know, what we do not see at the very start is a condemnation. You know, when, we, when the, we're looking here at something about the, the Bible's perspective on human sexuality, what we do not see is a condemnation. Now, typical views on this outside today and, and really has been the case for millennia, you have basically have two camps. One is sex as an appetite, which means it's no different than any other appetite. So you can have sex with whomever and wherever and whenever you please, because it's just an appetite. That's one view. Here's another view. It's very different, but they actually have a lot in common. The other view is, no, it's not an appetite, it's evil. 
and it's defiling. And therefore, you need to stay away from it because it will make you unclean. And the last thing you want to do is talk about it on a Sunday morning. Okay? Those are the two camps, the two basic camps. And you may wonder, where do I find those things today? At the risk of sounding a little cheekily, here's where you can find those things today. The first few you find in the blue states. The second view you find in the red states. And they're both wrong. They're both wrong. The Bible's view is that God created this. This is his idea. This is his good idea. Sex taking place in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And he says that's good. He made it that way. It was his idea. And time and time again through the scriptures, we see it commended. Commended by the author and creator of it himself. So that's the first thing. It's not a con condemnation. But now following up on that, you have to say, well, then what in the world are we seeing in Leviticus 15? Okay, I, maybe I'm with you partially. That's not a condemnation. But what on earth is it? It's a regulation, which is very different than a condemnation. It's not a condemnation. It's a regulation. Think with me. Uh, we had a fire going in our uh, wood stove yesterday. Maybe some of you had in your fireplaces. Okay, so here's, here's the analogy. Okay. Fire in the fireplace does a lot of good, has a great, great potential to do great good, keeping you warm. You get that fire outside the, the fireplace, it'll burn the house down. Because of the potential that fire has to do great good or great harm if handled wrongly, that's sex. And that's the Bible's view uh, on this. And what we're seeing is something is the need to, to restrict it, to guard it, to protect it. And you see that here in Leviticus 15. Let me just walk quickly through these specific cases of purity and impurity. You might be wondering, what, what, can you give me something here? Just quickly, I'll give you a few things that might help explain some of this. So with the male, first half, female, second half, the male, the abnormal stuff you see there in verses 2 through 15, quite likely reference to some sort of venereal disease. Quite likely what's going on there. Verses 16 through 18 uh, has to do with a normal discharge, a healthy man. You may be wondering, why in the world is he uh, ritually unclean because of semen? We're actually, commentators are not quite sure on that, but we do know this. As a consequence of that, it rules out illicit pagan practices in the tabernacle or the temple, which was common in the day in the neighboring nations. You get to the second half with the woman, and uh, you see in verses 19 through 24, her normal menstrual cycles being described there. You may be wondering, well, why does the blood render her to be ritually impure? Well, likely, we don't know, but likely because blood would be the most defiling thing that you could possibly consider. Uh, human blood be incredibly ceremonially, ritually defiling. Abnormal uh, situation, verses 25 through 30, for the woman, possibly, possibly what's going on there is some form of cancer. But let me go back to the, the woman and the, the normal situation there in verses 19 through 24, and just a quick observation on the mercies of God. You may be wondering, mercies of God in this? How? Stay with me. Interpersonal contact with her at that time of the month is not prohibited. Her family and friends are still able to render her comfort and aid in the midst of her suffering. Interpersonal contact is not prohibited. That's huge. It's absolutely huge. And something else to consider. 
she is given a socially acceptable reason to withdraw. You think about what a comfort that would be to a person in that historical redemptive context. God's mercy, God's mercy. You can see something of that even, even here. Now, the significance of these cases, again, this is building off of the, second, the first point. Now, the second point, the significance of all of this, the Lord, God is Lord of all of life. You're an ancient Israelite. You're seeing this. You're hearing this. You're watching this. As a man or a woman or a child growing up in this context, you see, he is with us. He's there in the, his royal throne, there in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. He is with us. He is moving among us as we're moving through the wilderness. He is our God. We are his, his people, and he is involved in every area of our lives. Absolutely every area of our lives, including this. Including this. And goodness, is that not worth considering in our day? Every day, but in, in our day, it would seem sometimes especially. So, in terms of application, where do we go with this? What do we do with this? Let me just say two things. And they both have a sense of comprehensiveness and, and inclusiveness. The first thing is, again, the Lord is Lord of all of life, including sex. These other views, the ones I alluded to earlier, that would see sex as either an appetite or as evil, are lies. And they will do us harm to the degree that we believe them. If you want to take the fire out of the fireplace and pick it up and put it in the middle of the room and pretend like nothing's going to happen, you're going to hurt yourself. You will surely do damage to yourself because that is outside of God's creative intent. He is Lord over all of life. And oh, we, how we need to, to hear that and mind that and be glad for the way in which he has spoken here. The second thing, the second application flows right from that. Not just that he is Lord over all of life, but that he offers forgiveness for every sin. He is Lord over all of life, including sex, and he offers forgiveness for every sin, including sexual sin. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. Like Lady Macbeth, who can't get rid of the spot. That doesn't have to be you. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing that is offered here in Christ. And you see it pictured even here. Here in Leviticus chapter 15. And so you can look at, say, verse 31. As you're going back there, just think with me how important this, how significant this is for us to hear. No few of us have done ourselves, not to, to, not to say even others, harm, but no few of us have done ourselves harm here. And, I, and we've talked about fire and, and the potentiality for sex and it, the potential there for good and for harm. And it's not surprising that it touches us not just physically but spiritually and there's forgiveness that is promised, that is held forth. Chapter 15, verse 31, these words to Moses and Aaron from the Lord, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Now these words were spoken to Moses and Aaron, the idea being that if you don't address this in the ways that I have prescribed, it runs the risk of impurity running wild throughout the camp. 
because there was a sense which, you know, that, that ritual and state of impurity was, you could see that again and again as I was reading it, is a sense in which it was contagious. So if you don't deal with it, it's, it could just go run right through the camp. If you don't deal with it, if you don't deal with it, if you don't address it in the way that I'm prescribing, and this happens, that's in essence an assault. An assault on the kingship of God, on the, the, the one who has established you as a people and saved you as his own. And that is cosmic treason. And the stakes are huge. And so, Moses, Aaron, the Lord says, you must, you must separate the people from their uncleanness. Here's the good news. We have one who's done that. There is one who has come, the greater Moses, the greater Aaron, the greater prophet, the greater priest, who has come and separated us once and for all from our uncleanness. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. You can read about this in so many places in the New Testament. I'll just give you two. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the whole book of Hebrews, we could read that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Or 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. My friends, we have one who has once for all separated us from our uncleanness. His name is Jesus his name is Jesus, and that is really good news, and we see it spoken to, pictured here for us. He is the Lord of all of life. He is the Savior of all, and we see that here in these Levitical laws. Let, let me just try and press this home, if I may, wrapping up this, with this, this picture. Um, let's say you are a citizen of Brussels. I'll get to why here in a second. You're a citizen of Brussels, okay? And you have heard in the news that the king of Belgium, King Philippe, has handed down this edict to all the people of, of Belgium that because of fuel shortages, I'm just making this up, by the way. This is, hasn't happened. That king Philippe, has, because of fuel shortages, has said that all the people of Belgium are to turn in their cars, and from henceforward, until you hear word otherwise, if you want to get somewhere, you're to walk or ride a bicycle. And you say, huh, well, Marge, it's time to drive into town. And the person watching all this, over he hearing all this, overseeing all this, says, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I don't understand. You live in Brussels, didn't you hear what the king said? The king said, no more driving. Turn in your cars. If you want to get from point A to point B, yeah, but I, I live in Brussels, Wisconsin. <laughs> Founded in 1850 with a population of 1,136. So what the king of Belgium says to the people in Brussels, Belgium, 
is all fine and dandy. That's interesting, but I don't care because he has no claim over me. Friends, that's exactly the posture we think we can take with Jesus. We think he has no claim over us, and so we don't hear a word. We don't think he is, his words have any relevancy to us. Let me, let me just push this analogy just a little further, if I may. Let's say we do live in Belgium, Brussels, Belgium, and we hear the king's word, and we decide then to ignore it. Well, we have a problem, and, and it's we who have the problem. It's not the king's problem. We're the one with the problem. Or let's just go, you know, historical what if, and I don't know what chain of events would have to have happened in years past for this to take place, but let's say for just a minute, for argument's sake, that we do now. We're back in Wisconsin. We're back in Brussels, Wisconsin, and the king of Belgium, who somehow now is king of the world, and there's not a place on this earth where his flag does not wave, and now we ignore what he has to say. We have a twofold problem. We have a twofold problem. And, and the first is this we don't know who our ruler is. That's problem one. And problem two is we don't see how far his rule extends. We think it's just this far, and we can do it if we want over here. But actually, he's Lord over all, he's king over all, and he, so he speaks into all including the most personal aspects of our lives, into everything. And keep in mind, this king, we've already said this, this king, his greatness is matched only by his goodness. And everything he says is set out of wisdom and faithfulness and love and mercy to his people. He speaks into all of life, and we see that here in these laws. Can we pray? Lord, may we know who our king is, and it's you. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are disciples, we know our king, we know who our king is. But may, may we really know it, and may we know how far his reign extends. Would you help us to delight, to delight in being reminded of your greatness and your goodness towards us? Would you help us to trust in your wisdom, trust in your character, trust in your commands? all of them? Would you help us to turn to you for strength in heeding them and turn to you for forgiveness for we surely do fail, all of us, in so many ways in these areas. So we need not just your help, we need your forgiveness. And we thank you that we can have it, that we would bear our guilt and shame no more. We pray in your name. Amen.